Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening and welcome. Thanks for coming here on ADH TV. Plenty happening tonight. Bolt yourself in. The whole world is talking about the raid on Donald Trump's home and what it means. Mr. Trump immediately released a campaign style video in which he called America a nation in decline, but then promised that, quote, soon we will have greatness again. He sent out a fundraising request calling on, quote, every single red blooded American patriot to step up, unquote and donate to, quote, fight this never-ending witch hunt, unquote. I'll amplify all that for you shortly, but it's on for young and old now. Talking about crises, there is a continuing crisis in teacher education, but how staggering that they're still talking about it when I raised this issue more than 10 years ago. I'll have something more to say about that tonight. We'll go to the UK and David Maddox, because as I said, the Trump issue is the headline everywhere. We'll get his perspective and the ludicrous story that Meghan Markle is the second most popular choice amongst women to run for the presidency. Work that out. And could Boris become American president, which I raised several weeks ago. I'll also look at the issue of death, obituaries, and the imminent retirement of Serena Williams. So there's plenty of us to get our teeth into tonight, but don't forget your views are important too. I do answer the emails though, I have to say, the volume is such that I'm a little behind. That's my confession tonight. Email me nonetheless, Alan Jones at ADH.TV. You're watching ADH-TV. Yesterday, as you know, I spoke to Peggy Grandy in America about the raid on the Florida home of the 45th President of the United States, Donald J. Trump. As you've come to know, Peggy Grandy, the former executive assistant to Ronald Reagan, is articulate and informed. Well, she emailed me late last night with a significant message, and I quote it. What a sad day in America. We have officially become a banana republic when the full force of the government is weaponized against a private citizen for political purposes. Thank you for giving us a moment to talk about it, unquote. Well, I think it deserves more than a moment. Donald Trump argued, and I quote, such an assault could only take place in broken third world countries. Sadly, America has now become one of those countries, corrupt at a level not seen before. They even broke into my safe. What's the difference between this and Watergate, where operatives broke into the Democrat National Committee? Here, in reverse, Democrats broke into the home of the 45th President of the United States, unquote. How on earth must the opponents of the free world view our leader, the United States? Firstly, it's no comfort to witness the progressive deterioration in the cognitive skills of the American president. Have a look at this picture where the poor chap on his first trip since catching COVID struggles to put on his jacket and then drops his sunglasses. Have a look at this.
As my old man would say, poor bugger, really. He belongs in a home, doesn't he? However, look at this. Biden is at the White House for signing ceremony. Chuck Schumer, the US Senate Majority Leader, one of his Democrat members, turned around to shake hands with Mr Biden and other US officials after he had delivered, Schumer had delivered a speech. But a few seconds after shaking hands with the president, the president appeared to reach out his hand again. Have a look at this. Oh dear. You've got to wonder about the mental state of a man who's just shaken hands and then reaches out to shake again. President Biden will turn 80 in November, the oldest president ever elected. His best insurance policy for keeping the job is that the Democrats know Kamala Harris is hopeless. You have a once proud Democrat party which gave the nation people like Woodrow Wilson, Franklin Delano Roosevelt and JFK reduced to this physical and intellectual impoverishment and terrified of the return of Donald Trump. And so we have the first raid on an ex-president's home in the history of the United States. If the Democrats thought this kind of political persecution or what Trump has called prosecutorial misconduct will deter him from seeking public office, it's likely to be an own goal for the Democrats. Trump will now certainly run again. A lawyer for Mr Trump said the FBI agents took about 12 boxes away. They broke a padlock to a basement room where they were stored, they ransacked the room, and then there are separate boxes, separate from the 15 boxes Mr Trump had already returned to the National Archives in January. That is what they claimed yesterday, a separate from those 15. Mr Trump said that agents had broken into his safe. Members of his family claimed an office at the Florida home had been just basically torn apart. Mr Trump was in New York and at the time, at the time, and immediately released a campaign-style video in which he called, as I mentioned in my introduction, called America a nation in decline, but then promised that, quote, soon we will have greatness again, unquote. Mr Trump's team then sent out a fundraising request calling on, and I quote, every single red-blooded American patriot to step up and donate, quote, to fight this never-ending witch hunt. As Nick Allen has reported, quote, one Republican official said if Mr Trump was not convicted of a crime following the high-profile raid, then you have martyred him and guaranteed him the Republican nomination. The chairperson of the Republican National Committee, Ronna McDaniel, accused the FBI of damaging US democracy. She said, quote, this is the government using an agency to spy on a potential opponent's campaign. And this is truly frightening. She said, it's not what our democracy stands for. We have to take the reins of power back, unquote. Even Mike Pence, Mr Trump's former vice president, who's now distanced himself from Mr Trump, said, quote, no former president of the United States has ever been subject to a raid on their personal residence in American history, unquote. Now, you might recall that Hillary Clinton, during the 2016 presidential election, was found to have dealt with classified information on a private email server and allegedly destroyed evidence to cover up what many would say is a serious crime, but she was never treated like this. This is the same FBI which is supposed to be investigating Hunter Biden, an investigation which has been going on for four years without a single indictment being filed. 
Republicans believing the FBI is dragging its feet to protect the president. There are reports that 10 whistleblowers have come forward to complain that agents working with congressional Democrats are dismissing allegations against the Bidens as quote-unquote disinformation without even investigating the allegations. This has led to the former Attorney-General Bill Barr changing direction and now saying a special prosecutor should take over the Hunter Biden investigation. Well, may it be argued that US democracy is being seriously damaged. Way back when Trump won the presidency, congressional investigators found texts between FBI agents and lawyers saying, quote, we will stop Trump, unquote, from becoming president. These are desperate measures by the Democrats with midterm elections coming up in November and the likelihood of Republicans sweeping control of the House and the Senate. Well, the House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy issued the Democrats an ominous warning, telling the Attorney General to, quote, preserve your documents and clear your calendar, unquote. America in political turmoil, the winners, Russia and China. Well, let's go to the UK and the political editor of Express Online, David Maddox. He's always at the centre of the action. You can get the latest, of course, by going to the website. Uh, David Maddox writes splendidly and his insights are extraordinary. Express.co.uk. David, thank you for your time. But look, the free world had been shaken by the raid on President Trump's home in Florida. You, as I understand it, have spoken to Jason Miller, Mr Trump's chief communications strategist in the 2020 election. He says the former president is the subject of a witch hunt with the purpose of trying to prevent him from running for office again. Just amplify that point. Well, uh, they, they, they are uh, terrified. I think over in America, the Democrats side, this is uh, terrified that Trump is going to run again. And all the polling shows that he would win easily. Uh, we, we carried some polling this week, actually, from the Democracy Institute, which is a Washington-based think tank uh, we have an arrangement with. And it shows, you know, whoever the Democrats put up against Trump, Trump wins by a country mile. In fact, the one who stands the best chance against him, ironically, is Joe Biden. And, you know, 57% of Americans, according to our poll, think that Biden is completely incompetent. So that, you know, that, that tells you everything. So really. is, ja is Jason... And, you know, I, I, I have a series of things to, to, against, against Trump, you know, to try and basically impeach him or, or something. I was, to going, I was going to ask you that. I was going to ask you that. Is Jason Miller arguing that they are trying to impeach Trump for a third time? Uh, what would that mean for the American Constitution, the American people and democracy? Because... Once the government begins to weaponize its judicial system against political opponents, it's very difficult to recover from that. Well, that's exactly what Jason said as well, and he's, he's absolutely right. I mean, whatever political viewpoint you take, once, uh, once you start locking up your political opponents, it's, it's a very dark world indeed, actually. I mean, uh, we only have to look at 20th century European history to see where, where that particular rabbit hole takes us. And, 
Yeah, it's uh, there. There certainly seems to be an effort to do that. I'm I'm actually due to have lunch with Jason later this week. He's over here in London, and um, he's very concerned about it. Uh, And and I know, actually, reading reading uh, from a reaction over in America, a lot of. Republicans are. Oh, no doubt about that. I mean, I think the whole thing has backfired, actually. I was just about to say that. I was just about to say that to you, David. I mean, surely the Democrats here have kicked an own own goal because the Republicans look like taking back control of both the House and the Senate Hmm. in the November elections, and the minority leader, Kevin McCarthy, has vowed to investigate the Justice Department. So they're playing a losing game here, the Democrats. They really are. They really are, actually. I mean, there's nothing... There's nothing like trying to lock up your political opponents to uh, get people to think that probably your political opponents are right. Uh, so uh, it's it's um, you know it, it's a really dangerous game, and and I've, I actually think it kind of underlines the desperate the desperation actually oh, the no Democrats doubt. have. I mean they're, they're no falling doubt. apart over there. No doubt. But I mean when you think of the enormous sweep of American history all the presidents and all the vagaries of each presidency, this is the first time in American history that such a warrant has been issued by a US court. Mm. Hardly a record you'd think that any political party would want to be identified with. No, not at all. And, 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 and it's, it's extraordinary, actually. I mean, the, the Trump presidency in its own right was extraordinary, but the, you know, the great attack on Trump from the Democrats was that Trump himself was a great threat to the Constitution and to American democracy, but it was the closest thing they'd ever had to a tyrant. Yes. Which is, of course, complete nonsense. It was all mm. hyperbole. Yeah. But actually, they are now they are now morphing into what they claim well, to be defending the uh, a- US against. David, David, what is this nonsense that Meghan Markle is the second most popular choice amongst women <laughs> to run for the Democrats in 2024. I mean, the polls show no. that even the Democrats are saying that Trump was a better president than Biden. 57% believe Biden's mm. incompetent. Pelosi ignored him when he told her not to visit Taiwan. But are there suggestions the Democrats will pick a woman and Michelle Obama is a long way ahead on the polls, but apparently she says she's not interested. And then comes Meghan Markle, 10 points ahead of Kamala Harris and Hillary Clinton way back in the field. Where the hell is all this going? Again, I I think this shows the desperation of the the Democrats over there. And uh, all I can say is a a President Markle would probably be... (laughs) Britain's worst oh, nightmare. Oh, uh, I mean, can, can you imagine? I mean, it would just be, you know, I no. mean, it might be. I no. mean, the, the Queen would would probably lock herself up in Windsor oh, Castle dear. and not come back. Oh, come it's on. Just, the woman, you know, it, she wouldn't get 100 it's, it's votes. It's just atrocious. She wouldn't get 100 votes. Well, she, I mean, but, but this is a worrying thing, actually. She, she would pick up around 40% of the votes, God. according to our poll. Simply because she, partly what? because she was a Democrat candidate, what? but also because she's something fresh and uh, <laughs> fresh I, I and mean, dumb. Fresh and yeah. dumb. Yeah, That's we've, actually, good... we've actually got a poll question going into British um, British voters this week, 
um, asking him what would be worse, uh, President Trump or President Markle. I'm pretty, I'm pretty confident that I know what the answer will be on that. <laughs> I'd, so, reckon, I'd reckon uh, a dead heat, actually. Just on this issue, though, David, <laughs> I raised this last month on this program, the fact that according to the US Constitution, anyone can become president so long as he is, quote, a natural-born citizen of that country, is over 35 years of age, and has been a resident for 14 years. Now, so far, Boris Johnson qualifies by birth and age, but in 2016, yeah. he renounced his American citizenship, but a former citizen can always apply to regain citizenship. So he's got to get the 14 years residence required. He was there when he was a baby, three years later when his father worked in Washington. So he's in a deficit of, of 10 years to make up. Could Boris become an American TV star become a full-time citizen before he's 70. He's currently only 58, and away he goes. It, anything anything in, in this world seems possible at the moment, and certainly when it comes to Boris. I mean, uh, it, the, whole, the whole Boris saga is so extraordinary that I, I could actually honestly believe it. I mean, all I can say is, again, referring back to that poll for us from America is, that he's a clear favourite amongst foreign leaders as an alternative US president. I mean, he's a long, long way ahead of Macron, and it's uh, who's in second place, and actually only just beats Putin, which is a bit worrying. But it's, uh, you know, I mean, I, I could see it. I could see it. I mean, he, he has a sense of destiny, and uh, <laughs> it, would, it would certainly fulfil that sense of destiny. I mean, imagine it, you know, the first British Prime Minister, then US President. Amazing. Yeah, it's not beyond the realms of possibility. Mind you, just coming back to what we talked about last week, those who know Boris say he's not finished with British politics. What are your thoughts on that? I, I think he's not. I think there is a very good chance that we'll see a Boris comeback, maybe not in a couple of years' time, but maybe later. I mean, we, we, we spoke last week about this petition, Bring Back Boris petition, yes, yes. Uh, amongst Tory membership. This has not died yet. Um, it, it, it's still unlikely that uh, they will be able to reverse what, what the Conservative MPs achieved in forcing him out. But it's not died yet. They've... Um, uh, the party have now actually accepted that they will need to do a rule change, just saying it's too late for the current leadership election. But that in itself is 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 quite a, an omission. And, uh, you know, it, we, we will see. I mean, I know Lord Crudus, who's organising this petition, you know, he has the numbers of members to get the rule change, 10,000 plus, and he's going to be... He's, he's pushing. He's pushing it. So, just, just you to, know, Boris may still be yeah, here. Yeah. Well, just to clarify that for our viewers, uh, this Lord Crudus, who has got a lot of dough, i got to tell you, and he was formerly a treasurer of the Conservative Party, and he's spearheading this campaign to give Tory members a vote to keep Boris in the Prime Ministership. In other words, it's Truss and Sunak, and they want Boris Johnson mm. on the list. Now, is Lord Crudus saying, uh, the former party treasurer, fairly rich, that they will consider legal action if the party doesn't respond. He is saying that. And uh, uh, I think there's a, a good chance it will happen. The party have responded to him, as I say, and, and uh, I think their response has opened the door to a, to a rule change. And uh, it's whether it's in time to, you know, bring Boris back or keep Boris or whatever... 
It's... So it, it, is, it is extraordinary. This, this saga has not played out. No. And the Boris supporters, you and I said this last week, they keep saying, and it is a fair point, Boris Johnson won an 80-seat majority, 43% of the popular mm. vote, the biggest since Margaret Thatcher, and the important point they're arguing, I know Lord Critters is arguing, raised the biggest election war chest for the party, the mm. biggest of all time. And, and it does seem mm. very undemocratic, does it not, that there are in the House of Commons a whole heap of Remainers. They were always opposed to Brexit. Mm. Boris sort of led the charge along with Nigel Farage, whom I'll talk to tomorrow night, but Boris led the charge and those Remainers were waiting to get squared. Now, they've all voted to get rid of him, but at the end of the day, the nation voted for Boris Johnson. The nation needs to have a say as to whether he should go. Well, this is uh, this is the increasing feeling on yeah. it, actually, and uh, and and you know and uh, you know by dint of that, uh, actually there is a, a strong uh, belief now we, uh, that uh, whoever takes over from him should have an election because we have an increasingly presidential style of prime minister, even though constitutionally you're voting for a party, it's increasingly presidential. And there's no doubt that all those extra votes, a lot of that came from Boris and his personality and his ability to uh, attract new kind of voters to Conservatives and things. So, you know, it's, it, it's, you, it's an interesting... Am I right in saying that you have conducted an exclusive poll revealing that a majority of voters are in favour of whoever replacing Boris Johnson should call a new poll. Now, Jacob Rees-Mogg says the way the British Constitution has evolved means a new Premier has to seek permission to govern from the British people within a few months of taking office. Can you imagine, David, in this volatile electoral environment for the Conservative Party that either Truss or Sunak would be calling an election? Uh, it's difficult to see it at the moment because Labour are ahead in the polls, but I, I could see a scenario where we have a new Prime Minister, let's say Liz Truss, who everybody expects to win. She comes in, she brings in the tax cuts that everybody wants. There's a short-term boost in support. The Conservatives go back ahead and they think, well, do we hold on for another two years where the economy is just going to get worse and we're going to get blamed for it? Or do we go for it and try for a five-year government? And I think in most circumstances, she might go for it. Um, if, if, if not, she will refer back to the last Labour government where Gordon Brown took over mid-term from Tony Blair and held on to yeah. literally the very last day he yeah. could for three years. Uh, to try, uh, uh, not had an election, despite regular calls that he should have had. I mean, <clears throat> it looks as though at this stage, as you and I are talking, that Truss is going to win. What do you think will happen to Sunak? Um, will he disappear into the sunset? Will she give him a job? Will he accept the job? There's been quite a deal of enmity and animosity in the last couple of weeks between them both, hasn't there? There really has, actually. And uh, but, yeah, there's absolutely no love lost there at all. Um, there's even more animosity from the supporters of the yes, two yes, yes. For, for, for each other. And, uh, I mean, Truss has said that she would offer Sunak a job, but it's hard to see which job. It wouldn't be one of the top ones, certainly wouldn't be Chancellor 
again after what they've said to each other on their economic policies. I mean, he described her economic policy as immoral, so that's not a great start. <laughs> um, it's also hard to see how um, how she would uh, how he would actually accept a job. I mean, he's still got his green card from the United States. There's some people who speculate that he'll just you know chuck it in and. Uh, and, and go no, go back it? over there. Yep. So uh, you know, who knows? Who, who knows? knows? But it's who it knows? seems very hard to see how they could work together. Absolutely, a volatile world, David. Look, I know you're off for a break, bit of a summer holiday. Good on you. You've earned it. We'll miss you, but we look forward to welcoming nice. you back. Yeah. Uh, we look forward to welcoming you back. And to my viewers, let me say, tomorrow night, my special guest will be someone else with a profound insight into British politics, the Brexit architect, Nigel Farage. So, David, thank you for your time. Have a good break. See you on return. Thanks, John. There he is, David Maddox. You're watching ADH TV. Well, look, I wonder when we'll ever get action rather than talk about the disgraceful state of education in this country. I was staggered to read recently a well-written editorial in the Australian newspaper, which opened by saying, and I quote, the revelation that universities made offers to year 12 graduates with an Australian tertiary admission rank below 50 for 221 different bachelor degrees this year points to the need for major reform of education and training, unquote. Well, that's the most laudable comment. Let me first explain, by the way, this ATAR, the Australian tertiary admission rank. The ATAR is a number between 0.00 and 99.95 that indicates a student's position relative to all students in that academic group. So an ATAR of 80.00 means you are 20% from the top of your age group. But an ATAR below 50 means, in old-fashioned language, you failed. The concern today is that 221 different bachelor degrees this year have admitted students with an ATAR below 50. Well, hang on a minute. I've been raising this issue for so many years, I struggle to remember how long, but this is 2022. In 2014, a report by the Federal Education Department showed education faculties had the highest proportion of students with a low ATAR, education faculties. These are faculties training our teachers. 2014, 12% had an ATAR of 50 or less. Education faculties in that 2014 report show that the smallest proportion of students in the highest ATAR, ATAR band, that's over 90, were in education faculties. The report concluded in 2014 that the statistics add weight to the concern that the academic standards of teachers are falling. The then Federal Education Minister Christopher Pine, a lefty, instituted the usual response, a ministerial advisory group to review teacher training. 2014. Here we are, 2022, and the situation is worse. Let's go to 2016. Another Federal Department of Education report, which we were told was the first national analysis of university entry standards. The data revealed that teaching information, uh, sorry, teaching, information technology and commerce degrees were admitting the highest proportion of students with ATARs under 50, 2016. We were told that students with ATARs below 50 were three times more likely to be admitted to university in 2016 than they were in 2012. And further research revealed that the same students, of course, are twice as likely to drop out of university 
partly contributing to now more than $70 billion in unpaid hex fees, now called HELP. One researcher argued that over the past 10 years, universities, this is in 2016, had reached a point where almost everyone who applied found a place in a teacher education program, 2016. Who was the federal education minister? Another liberal, wet, lefty, Simon Birmingham. And you wouldn't feed him. And he warned that he will act to get universities in line. 2016, nothing happened. The point is that for years, students who may well have failed their HSC under the system with which we once existed, have been admitted into university teaching courses. This is happening because in 2012, the Gillard government removed caps on university student numbers, encouraging universities to chase money by admitting more students without any regard for academic standards. And here we are in 2022, complaining about the same problem. I've been alluding to this for years. The Australian Education Union President, Corina Haythorpe, is now warning that students with an ATAR lower than 70 are likely to fail a teaching degree. I'm sorry, they are already failing. And if they don't fail there, they fail when they get into the classroom, where their academic capacity may well be below that of the students they're supposed to teach. There are many architects of this failure. Of course, lefty education ministers must be first in line for legitimate criticism. But parents, stop being besotted with your child going to university. It isn't everything. Get your son or daughter a trade. Nothing wrong with being a plumber or a carpenter or an electrician. We need them. Stop pretending that a piece of paper from university is worth a lot. And it's certainly not worth much since Julia Gillard allowed virtually everybody who wanted to go to university to go, paid for, by the way, by you, the taxpayer. There is a further problem. We're most probably training people at university in degrees for which there are no jobs. The whole education system is desperately in need of reform. Who is going to be the architect of that reform? As I have pointed out, the problem's not new. I've been talking about it for more than 10 years. Well, something a bit different tonight. This is called Television On Demand, because as you know, following this program, we hear from Fred Paul, P-A-W-L-E. But you've all been writing to me saying on two, well, two things. One, you love what Fred does, and it's quite clear that he's got a brain, which is a big issue in the media, I have to tell you. But who is the bloke? So I thought, well, actually, we'll find out who he is. And he's joining me tonight, where I'll forensically examine him. And I hope you're satisfied with the end result. Fred, thank you for your time. Congratulations on your start. It's been a very significant start. I'm tired of all the emails telling me everybody loves you and they think you're terrific. But who is Fred Paul? Well, firstly, Alan, I've got to say it's such an honour to be coming on after you. I mean, <laughs> you know, Australia's greatest ever broadcaster, followed by... A surfer from Bondi. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the first point. He's a surfer from Bondi. Yeah. What else? Well, I grew up in Perth, Alan, so I have a bit of a, uh, you know, egalitarian West Australian uh, outlook on life. Uh, you know, as I said, I'm a surfer. I, it, it, that surfing cost me a lot in my education, I've got to say. Most of what I learned in life happened on the beach, not in classrooms. Nope, nothing wrong with that. Yeah. I actually got kicked out of school as a young bloke. And... Uh, <laughs> 
And after a few kind of wayward years, I wound up drifting, not drifting, but very deliberately going into journalism, mm. which is a profession I've always loved. Well, and you spent... write splendidly, I have to say. You write splendidly. And, uh, and look, we don't anticipate what you're going to talk about tonight, but just a quick one from you to give a bit of an insight to our viewers. Donald Trump? Well, I'd like to know what happened yesterday in America. Could that happen in Australia? I mean, Australia's heading in the same direction as America. You know, we have a... The left side of politics is very authoritarian here, just as it is yes. in the US. And they tend to militarise the bureaucracy and even the uh, police forces against their opponents. And that's exactly what happened yesterday. Now, it, during the lockdown here in Australia, we saw the same thing happen here. You know, people were being shot, albeit by rubber bullets, on the streets in, uh, in Victoria. And, you know, half the country was locked up in their homes. Yeah. So would a politician having... We ha we've seen their darker side, Alan, Quite. and it's not pretty. Would they try to do that in Australia? I think the answer is yes. Good on you. To mums and dads watching, you see, did you hear what Fred said at the outset? He fell out of school. He learned everything on the beach. Uh, this is not all about getting university degrees. Your son or daughter could be something, and Fred is a classic example of that. Sometimes university mucks you up. Now, listen, I know you're a great supporter of Matt Keane and the new <laughs> deputy leader in New South Wales. I mean, what on earth is going on there? Well, by, by cuddling up to Matt Keane, Dom Perrottet is doing exactly what Scott Morrison did in, yep. the, in the election in May. Yes. Uh, you know, look how that ended. Yes. And the same thing's happening fe federally because we've got uh, Anthony Albanese cuddling up to Adam Bant, and that is pretty much a repeat of what Julia Gillard did with Bob Brown back in 2010. Now, Alan... Australian politics is like a soap opera at the best of times, but right now it's like we're watching a rerun of a yes, soap yes, opera. Yes. I mean, we like to, here at ADH, we like to encourage the best of our politicians and most of the good ones do come on. But the thing that worries me most, Alan, is, is the, the way the country is changing, both politically and socially. It's not, the, it's not the larrikin country it used to be. No, we've seen that. We've lost our sense of humour. We have. Yeah, you know, you're dead right. What do you make of this 43% um, emissions reduction target, 82% of renewables by, goodness me, 2030? That's only eight years away. They're kidding. Well, they are kidding, but this legislation also is a vehicle by which you can enforce ver various Quite. aspects. Or go to the courts. Exactly, go to the courts, in, 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 indeed. So, mm. But, Alan, the funny side of this is what effect will this have on politicians going overseas to attend climate change junkets? Should this 43% of emissions <laughs> reduction apply yeah. to that too? I mean, we've, we've been spending years Absolutely. pointing out the hypocrisy <laughs> of, of, of these politicians, well, maybe well, hitting them with legislation to work. Well, what about Bowen now saying, oh, well, I know he's worried about how he'll get to his 82% renewables, but he's now saying, well, we'll build wind farms offshore, oh, well, uh, or windmills offshore, you call them. I heard you call them windmills. <laughs> But I mean, how do we get, hey, how do we get the electricity onshore, Fred? Well, it's, it's the vibe of it, really, Alan. I mean, the they're just going <laughs> to stick these things up and it's people walking vibe. along the beach will be going, oh, we're so much greener <laughs> now. But, Alan, this is very dear to me. I mean, I love Australian beaches, just like most Australians <laughs> do. And it's, there used to be a joke going around that, you know, Zali Stegel, will Zali Stegel ever put wind turbines on the beach at, at Manly after she won Moringa in 2019? 
Well, it looks like someone in Chris Bowen's office has looked at that joke and thought, oh, hang on, that's a good idea. Yes, anyway. that's it. Put them in Macquarie Street. Plenty yeah. of wind there. Yeah. <laughs> now, now, listen, I know you're a fan of uh, Matt Guy in Victoria. We've got a lot of Victorian viewers watching down there. Watch. Oh, I'm joking. I'm joking. But I will say this. How superior as a politician, forget whether you agree with him or not and all his convictions and whether he's right or wrong, but Andrews as a politician, securing and holding power, leaves them for dead, doesn't he? Oh, yeah, he's a consummate professional. Absolutely. And it, it only, like, like you and I, Alan, it, and all our viewers and punters, it just makes you wonder what happens behind the scenes. You know, it's the same with how Matt Keane got the deputy premiership. Yeah. How, what happens behind the scenes of our governments mm. between our elected, uh, our elected representatives? But regarding this election in, in coming up in November in Victoria, Alan, to quote Henry Kissinger, it's a pity, Henry Kissinger talking about the Iran-Iraq war in the 1980s, it's a pity they both can't lose. That's it, a pity they both can't lose. Well, of course, I think there'll be a replacement now. Guy will go. He's in too much trouble. Just coming back to New South Wales, why didn't Perrottet... If there were two starters, Elliot and Keane, why didn't Perrottet tell Keane to drop off? Well, again, it, it, it goes to what happens in the back rooms. Yeah. And none of us are ever told about this. I mean, you had David Elliott on your show the other day and, and he, he looks kind of, you know, a little bit bewildered by what had happened. Mm. I mean, the, the thing is, Alan, I don't think Robert Menzies himself would be welcome in the Liberal Party these days. That's a good point. That is a very, very good point. I'll tell you what, viewers out there, what do you make of it? This bloke's got some gears. You've done splendidly. What's on tonight? Tell us what you've got on tonight. Well, we've got a big editorial on Trump. We've got David Flint talking about various good constitutional man, yeah. uh, matters. We've got uh, Stephen Senatiempo from Canberra. Yeah, lovely He's a, fellow. He can, he can talk Isn't about anything. Sense of humor? Like, yep. And then, and then when do you get back to the beach? Well, well, funny you should mention that. We've, we're also talking, we're also going to cheer on Jack Robinson. You, you're a big sports fan, Alan, but surfing's a bit of a blind spot for you, so I'm filling that gap with a little piece about Jack Robinson, who's the world number two surfer in the moment. Good. I'm a farmer's son. Farmer's son, Fred. We never saw water. <laughs> hey, well done. Lovely to welcome you to ADH. Congratulations on the work you're doing, and congratulations on the viewers that you're gathering as a result of what you saying if I'm saying to the viewers you've heard tonight the man has gears he's got a brain he's got a sense of humor he's got a personality and as my old man would say he hasn't been buggered up by a useless university education so Fred we'll catch up with you soon Fred will be on after me tonight he'll be on at nine o'clock you're on ADH TV it was the metaphysical poet John Donne who wrote of death and I quote it comes equally to us all and makes us all equal when it comes how true. But in history, there are some celebrities who've requested to read their own obituaries before their passing. One of them was P.T. Barnum, the genius behind the Barnum and Bailey Circus. He requested to see his obituary printed in the New York Evening Sun. He got his wish. On March 24, 1891, the obit was printed on the front page, top billing. He died two weeks later. It prompts certain questions. Glorious, Sensitive, evocative, and often emotional tributes have been paid in recent days to Judith Durham and Olivia Newton-John, which leaves one to wonder why we couldn't have said all these things about two remarkable Australians while they were alive. Would they ever have known how much they meant to people? 
across a broad cross-section of society. Well, a metaphorical death of a different kind has been announced today, the imminent sporting death, if that image can be used, of the great Serena Williams. She will retire after the US Open in a few weeks' time. Not many athlete retirements warrant new alert, news alerts popping up across every major media outlet imaginable, let alone a female athlete, nor do they opt for a September Vogue cover shoot and an op-ed. To share the announcement, Serena and Venus Williams' careers have stood apart in every sense. Children of a very poor family from the impoverished Compton Public Courts in Los Angeles. I've always argued that in the world of coaching, the father, Richard Williams, must rank amongst the greatest sporting coaches of all time. He masterminded two of the dominant and most unlikely careers in one of America's most elite sports. Serena came back from life-threatening blood clots to win 10 major singles titles. She won her 23rd major title at the Australian Open in 2017, becoming the oldest woman to do so at 35, but she was two months pregnant with her daughter. Serena will be 41 on September 26. From the 2002 French Open to the 2003 Australian Open, she won all four major singles titles, each time over Venus, beating Venus in the final. She won eight out of 13 major singles titles. That's the Australian, French, Wimbledon and US. Eight out of 13, including four in a row from 2014 to 2015 to achieve a second Serena Slam. Richard Williams' coaching of his daughters ushered in a new era of power and athleticism in women's tennis. The father from a very poor family decided to stop sending his daughters to national junior tennis tournaments when Serena was 10. They'd been winning everything. But having predicted even then that his two girls would dominate the world of tennis, he also said he wanted them to go slowly and focus on schoolwork. Sadly, that view was most probably influenced by experiences of racism as he heard white parents talk about the Williams sisters in a derogatory manner. I was broadcasting during the 2012 Olympic Games in London. I wanted to see the great Serena Williams in action. My friend, the sadly departed architect of change in the way players are treated and paid in the professional game, the late Brad Druitt, told me he'd get me a seat at Wimbledon. I arrived and who was I sitting next to but the great Kobe Bryant, one of the greatest basketball players of all time, who spent his entire 20-year career with the Los Angeles Lakers, but who sadly died, as you know, along with his daughter and seven others in a helicopter crash in California in 2020. The match in play when I arrived was a semi-final in the men's gold medal contest, Roger Federer versus the Argentinian Juan Martin Del Potro. It was a searingly hot day. The match went on and on, the longest single te singles tennis match in Olympic history and the longest match in the Open era. It lasted four hours and 26 minutes, with Roger winning 19-17 in the third set. Kobe Bryant and I had been talking. It was clear he knew little about tennis, but said he idolised Roger Federer. So when it was all over, he got up to leave, to which I said, what are you doing? I said, one of your people is about to come out of the court and she's regarded by many as the greatest player, male or female ever, Serena Williams. He stopped to tell me he didn't know much about her. So as she warmed up for her semi-final against the then number one player in the world, Victoria Azarenka, I urged him to stay. Serena won the toss and served. I said to him, watch this, Serena didn't let me down. 
In her first game, she served four blistering aces. She and Azarenka were off the court in under an hour, 6-1-6-2. Serena then played for the gold medal, the former world number one, Maria Sharapova. The gold medal, 2012 Summer Olympics. She beat Sharapova 6-love, 6-1. Serena served more aces than Sharapova won points. Serena won the gold medal without losing a set, without losing more than three games in any set, and without losing more than five games in any match. And she became the first player, male or female, to win the Korea Golden Slam in singles and doubles. That is, Olympic gold and the four majors in singles and doubles. Today, she's announced her retirement after the US Open. She's fought many battles, not just on the court, and inspired women to believe they can be as good as anybody and that, and that they deserve the same public and media space as men. Her often one-sided victories, interspersed, yes, with some ugliness, demonstrated to many that unbridled competitiveness and femininity can coexist. And imagine the parental pride. Consider this. Mum, Oracine, latterly the coach, wakes up on the morning of the Wimbledon Women's Singles Final to get breakfast for two daughters. They are both in the final in 2002, 2003, 2008 and 2009. Serena won three of them. It'll never again happen in tennis history. Yes, it's hard to think of a sporting landscape without Serena Williams. Well, before we go to Fred, let me amplify some points I've already made tonight. As you've heard, and I said at length, and we say it each Tuesday with Peggy Grandy, and I know Fred will have something to say next, but the deterioration which we're witnessing in the leadership of the United States of America is truly frightening. Indeed, I've had business people ring me today about that very issue. Joe Biden is presiding over the end of American dominance, and this changes our world completely. Greg Sheridan, the very experienced foreign editor of The Australian, alluded to that here last night on the show. The free world you and I have grown up in is at significant risk. Biden is clearly unfit to govern. Peggy Grandy told us that these FBI raids on Donald Trump's Florida home look to be, at face value, politically motivated. This is the Washington establishment working overtime to block the resurrection of Donald Trump and the movement he's created. It isn't a movement of ratbags and hicks. It's a movement filled with forgotten people from the suburbs, people who wake early, roll up their sleeves and contribute to their country. These people have been left behind for years by snooty politicians from both the left and the right. They aren't allowed to speak their mind. They can't voice an opinion which might be contrary to what the politically correct want them to say. In other words, they aren't free in their own once free country. They see politicians flying to Davos, meeting with globalist European leaders, talking about spending their taxes on green schemes, which make eco-millionaires richer, and they become poorer. They can't afford heating during winter or to eat red meat for dinner because groceries are so expensive. They can't even afford today to fill the car with petrol. This is the silent majority who voted for Trump. They wanted him to drain the swamp. He was in the process of doing that, and the movement of the elites rose against him. A similar silent majority in the United Kingdom voted for Brexit back in 2016. I'll be speaking to Nigel Farage about that tomorrow night, right here on ADH-TV. It's an interview you won't want to miss. But back to America, 
Biden will never be forgiven by Americans or the free world for the erosion of the free world's leadership, which has happened under his presidency. Or should we call it the surrender of the free world to Russia and China? Americans now know the mistake they made in 2020. They're unlikely to repeat it in 2024. And that is what has the Democrats behaving as they did yesterday. Well, Fred's coming up next. That's it from me tonight. I'll see you tomorrow night. Don't forget, Nigel Farage. Good night. You're watching ADH TV.